Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast today. Today, we're going to be um, looking at the parable in Matthew 25, 1 through 13. So this is one of my favorites, the one of the bridesmaids. And so, um, Alan, why don't you tell us about this? Well, our gospel lesson this week takes us into a chapter of parables that emphasize the importance of being ready for the return of the Son of Man by constantly practicing the mercy, fairness, and hospitality that constitute fulfilling all righteousness or the doing of God's of the Father's will or the practice of Jesus' teachings that Matthew has emphasized throughout his gospel. Uh, These parables also reiterate the separation that will take place within the church between those who are wise and foolish, those who are righteous and evildoers. Thus, they provide a sort of conclusion to the theme of judgment in Matthew's gospel. You know, and maybe you'll talk about this later, but even in your first description here, wise and foolish, is that equal righteous and evil? Well, those word pairs are, are, are parallel. Um, I don't know that we would say that they're equal, but they are parallel. Um, uh, in, Matthew, in Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the wise builders are the ones who hear Jesus' words and do them. The foolish ones are the ones who hear them and don't do them. Um, uh, and in, in parables in, in chapter 13, uh, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, um, the weeds growing in the wheat and the parable of the dragnet, um, you know, they're, they're both, the, the weeds and the wheat are separated at the end, and that stands for the righteous and the evildoers. And so right. it's, 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 a tr- it's a tricky thing, but, I mean, that seems to be the case. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, I think one of the big questions is how does this fit into um, what, has, what surrounds it within the Scripture? And, I think, is that true with this one as well? Well, as I mentioned last week, I agree with Gene Boring, who thinks that the woes chapter of 23 and the eschatological discourse proper of chapter 24 and this collection of parables about judgment in chapter 25 constitute a final judgment discourse in mm. Matthew's gospel. So it should come as no surprise to learn that there are connections between these chapters, especially between chapter 24 and 25. In fact, there are a couple of parables of about preparedness at the end of chapter 24 that kind of paved the way for this chapter. And so we'll see that there, in fact, we're going to see that there are connections with judgment sayings found throughout Matthew's gospel in this chapter. So that takes us directly to today's, um, today's pericope, which is the parable of the bridesmaids. So what, what do we know about that? Well, the question of whether or not this parable originated with Jesus is something of an open question. It is, formally speaking, unique to Matthew's gospel, although there are some connections with Mark and Luke. Um, Because the basic premise of the parable relates to a number of things Jesus said, many conclude that Jesus may very well have told a shorter parable to illustrate the importance of being prepared. But many also would say that the current form of the parable is clearly Matthew's composition. So Matthew has taken what may have been a shorter um, parable and definitely elaborated it in accordance with his own purposes in the gospel. They say that. What, what's the reasoning for it? Well, it's, it's, it's unique. Um, 
uh, it fits in with Matthew's themes elsewhere, um, and so it reflects themes that, that we find that Matthew emphasizes, uh, mm-hmm. especially by adding things to uh, the tradition that you find reflected in the other Gospels. So, um, you know, when you take that in consideration, um, it, it really looks like it's Matthew's composition. I, you know, whether or not this originated with Jesus, I, I'm not prepared to say. I, I really don't know. I, this, is, this is one where I would have to leave it open. I don't okay. know. I think it's possible that Jesus might have told a, a parable about preparedness that was similar to this, but the form in which we have it is, is not. not Matthew. It, this not is it. Matthew. Yeah. Okay. Well, and it, it does make sense with the things we've talked about before. So, yeah. you know, it's just always, I think, when we... <laughs> and we've talked about red letter Bible, but when we just have this as part of Jesus told this parable, and then when we find out that maybe it isn't this way, it, 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 I think it always is a, a surprise. Yep. Yep. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't toss that around lightly. Um, but in, in this case, it, it seems pretty clear that this is Matthew's composition mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. most part. Now he's taken, he's taken bits and pieces of things and that, that I think are authentic to Jesus and put them, put them into this, yep. this, this pericope, but um, Matthew's responsible for the final form, most definitely, and and may be responsible for the parable in the first place. In, it, in itself. Yeah. It's, well, it's different. I like it because the, the imagery and the language is so unique. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, I mean, yes, the message is similar to what Matthew has put together, but bridesmaids and bridegroom, I mean, we see that other places, but I don't know, something about it always, always caught my attention. Yeah. So let's talk about it as is. Yeah. So we're, at the end of at the end of my segment, we're going to talk about what to make of this parable. But I think first we'll just walk through the details. And okay. Matthew opens the parable with a summary and or perhaps a title in verse one. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten young women took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. That's Matthew twenty five one in the new RSV updated edition. The consistency of the phrase the kingdom of heaven is like or will be like here in the future tense um, as an introduction to Matthew's Gospels calls attention to his shaping of this passage. You know, this is something that is consistent throughout Matthew's Gospel. He introduces parables of the kingdom in this way. Um, The fact that the women are called parthenois, traditionally translated as virgins in the English Bible tradition, uh, probably following the... the, um, Vulgate there, where Ginibus uh, was made a focal point for the interpretation of the parable in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Most recent English versions have rendered it as bridesmaids um, or young women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even the RSV has maidens. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the English Bible tradition also consistently translates the Greek word lampadas as lamps. But an oil lamp would have been impractical in an outdoor setting like this. And the, the, the commentaries I looked at consider this to be these to be torches. And only, only Tom Wright in his New Testament for Everyone and Bill Mounts in his, comment, in his own personal translation used torches, which is probably more accurate here. Okay, because we definitely have an image of this oil lamp. Yes, right? of course. Yeah. yeah. And it wouldn't have been practical outside. Right. Well, that's true, right? It would have gone out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so then what happens? What, what's the, how's the story unfold? Well, the fact that the young women are said to have gone to meet 
and it's Exelthon Ice Hupantesen, that they're go- they've gone to meet the bridegroom, likely would have called to mind for Matthew's community the idea of meeting Christ at his parousia. Mm-hmm. This phrase, Ex Erkestai Ice Hupantesen, or Apantesen, uh, either one in the Greek, could be used of meeting Jesus in his ministry in Matthew 8, 34, or in John 12, 13, it's of the crowd meeting him for the triumphal entry. Or in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, it's for meeting him at his parousia. So, so there's, some, there's some, I think the very language suggests the imagery of, of the parousia and, and sort of the end time. The mention of a bridegroom would also have reminded Matthew's community of Jesus, since Jesus referred to himself that way in Matthew 9.15, and the parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22 at least alluded to the idea yeah. of the yeah, son yeah. As, as the one getting married. Now, let me ask, you know, as I was looking through Reformation commentaries, this whole idea of the, um, you know, this wedding scene, but this whole bridesmaids thing is that based on some historical thing that happened? Is there anything that references that these bridesmaids accompanied the groom to? Uh... I I don't think we have enough information. I mean I mean, you know, from what I can tell, it seems to be realistic enough in terms of you know the idea that um, the bridesmaids would actually have accompanied the bride on her way. Mm-hmm. From from her house to the to the bridegroom's house. So there's some details that are a little off, but um, um, the basic setup seems to match. You know, we don't have a lot of information about about bridal pra- wedding practices in the first century. Because I know we've all heard this done of of people saying, "Oh, and this is what happened in the bridal party at this time." And I'm like, I don't know that we have that information. No, I don't know that we do either. I don't know that we do either. They make that assumption. Mm-hmm. Okay, so moving on. Yeah, as the parable oh, continues, yeah. Matthew says that five of them were foolish and five were wise in verse 2. And the contrast between those who are foolish and those who are wise is one that has resonated throughout Matthew's gospel. It recalls the contrast between those who only heard Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and those who heard and did his words in Matthew seven twenty four to 27 In Matthew's gospel, hearing and doing Jesus' words, or bearing fruit, or practicing the Father's will, all refer to a lifestyle of putting the commands to love God and neighbor into action through practical deeds of mercy, fairness, and hospitality. In this context, Matthew's parable identifies the difference between the foolish and the wise young women on the basis of their preparedness, or lack thereof. And he says in verses 3 and 4, when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And again, much has been made of trying to identify the oil that was needed um, uh, for these lamps in the history of the church. But in Matthew's context, I think it fairly clearly refers to a life of consistent discipleship. That's the preparedness that the wise uh, bridesmaids possessed and the foolish ones did not. And you're going to see this discussion, by the way, when we hit the Reformation, because they have every interpretation under the sun. I'm sure they do. (laughs) Yeah, including this one. So hooray, you know. (laughs) But um, I think that's one of the challenges for anyone that reads this, right, is is trying to make sense of what the oil is. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, really, I think in in, in Matthew's context, I, I... 
I don't see Matthew making a big deal out of it. I think for Matthew, it's fairly clear what the crux of discipleship is. And he's emphasized that over and over and over again. And so trying to find something other than that as the focal point in Matthew, in my mind, I know that I know that people have done it throughout the history of the church, but they're, they're missing the point when they, when they stray from that. Challenges is making sure that you understand the context in which this is put, which is Matthew, instead sure. of trying to just take it outside of its context or putting it in a different context. And which happened a lot. <laughs> and you'll see with the reformers, they're going to come in it with those reformation lenses. Yep. So that's they're going to interpret it that way. So let's yep. let's keep going with this. So as Matthew continues the parable, he says, As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. Now, I find it striking that in a parable that is meant as a warning about a lack of preparedness, or more, more literally, a failure to stay awake, all of the young women, not just the foolish ones, are said to have fallen asleep. I, I, that, that, is, that is just a highly ironical to me. But in Matthew's parable, that seems to be beside the point. The problem is that the foolish young women failed to bring enough oil for their torches, or maybe that they failed to bring oil for their torches at all. Mm-hmm. And Ulrich Lutz thinks that they probably, the, the torches probably consisted of poles that had a container suspended from them in which you put oil-soaked rags that would burn. And so you can see that if, if they didn't have enough oil, then the, the rags wouldn't burn long. Makes sense. So um, continuing. So Matthew continues, at, but at midnight there was a shout, look, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those young women got up and trimmed their lamps. That's verse six is, verses 6 and 7. Now, while it's, again, it seems strange to me that a bridegroom arrived at such a late hour at midnight, uh, we should remember that the details of this parable are not meant to be realistic, but rather right. serve Matthew's purpose by way of allegory and or alluding to similar ideas mm-hmm. in the gospel tradition. Further, we should note that in the minds of Matthew's community, this whole idea that the bridegroom was delayed would probably relate to the idea of a delay in Jesus' return. And and this is probably more significant in Luke's gospel, but in Matthew's, already in Matthew's time, for Matthew's community, the return of Christ had already been delayed because, right. you know, Paul Paul could write in some of his earlier letters as if he, he would be, be alive you know, right, right. to see the, 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 par- the parousia of Christ. And so yeah, I'm sure he wasn't the only one who, who had that expectation as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so what happens when the bridegroom arrives? Well, Matthew tells us that the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, no, there will not be enough for you and for us. You'd better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. That's verses eight and nine. This is always really troubling for people, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it would seem contrary to the main theme of Matthew's gospel regarding acts of discipleship that the wise young women wouldn't share their oil with the foolish. Mm -hmm. But it also seems unlikely at best and preposterous at worst that anyone could buy oil at midnight. (laughs) But again, the details of the parable aren't meant to be realistic, but rather to serve Matthew's purpose. We're, We're reminded here that even within the church, There are some who are wise and some who are foolish. Again, some of those who heard Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount were said to be wise because they were going to hear and put his 
his teachings into to, to action, and others were foolish because they were only going to hear them and not act upon them. And we also heard in some of the parables in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the wheat, the weeds among the wheat, and the parable of the, the dragnet, that there were some who were righteous and some who were evildoers, and that they were going to be separated at the judgment. So this is, a, this is something that Matthew is concerned about. And, and Matthew is, is, is uh, I think, um, crafting this parable with a view toward emphasizing these themes that he's already been, you know, he's already called out in the gospel. So they can't obviously go by oil at midnight. <laughs> right, right. So Matthew tells us that, you know, despite the unlikelihood of being able to buy oil at midnight, the foolish young women did indeed leave to try to do just that. And while they were gone, in verse 10, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to, into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. So, you know, the idea of the door to the banquet or the door to the kingdom of heaven being shut sounds harsh to my ears anyway. Uh, even in the book of Revelation, which is one of the most strongly apocalyptic text in the New Testament, Jesus is the one who stands before an open door that no one can shut in Revelation 3.8. Um, so it, it sounds a bit harsh. And, and the wedding banquet, you know, the idea of a banquet is um, something that um, relates to um, uh, participation in the kingdom of God. It's an image, uh, a banquet. The banquet is an image for participation in the kingdom of God, especially in the Hebrew Bible. So Matthew continues the, with the conclusion of the parable. Later, the other young women came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. And that's verses 11 and 12. Again, this echoes what was said in the Sermon on the Mount earlier to the effect that it is not those who called out, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of my Father in heaven who will be welcomed into the kingdom, according to Matthew seven twenty-one through 23. So for Matthew... The coming of the Son of Man to carry out judgment on the church. We're talking about judgment on the church in Matthew's gospel. Marks the end of the chance for those who would trust in him to choose the path of discipleship. This is something I think that is unique in the New Testament. It's unique in the gospel tradition, and it's unique in the New Testament. That, you know, Matthew here brings out this idea that there is an end of the chances for those who would trust in him, in Jesus, to choose the path of discipleship. And if they don't choose it before the judgment, then they have no more hope. Right. And that's something that's fairly troubling and fairly significant and, and, and has had a significant influence on the church throughout history, and something we'll talk about at the end. But in Matthew's thinking, there are clearly some in the church, even in the church, who will be excluded from the kingdom of God because they have failed to live a life of consistent discipleship. Uh, th to me, this is, this is a view that is unique in the whole New Testament. I don't think I've run across this. Maybe you get some of this in, in Revelation, but the idea, or, especially, or, or in the letters of John, you have some of this also kind of reflected, but the idea is they were false brothers and sisters in the first place. I, and yeah. I, so many things come to mind here, you know, as, as we listen to this. And I keep wondering, well, maybe it's me fighting with what was Matthew's intent? Was it really just to challenge them to be, keep up with their discipleship? Or was it indeed designed to be a potential condemnation? And 
I think that's a question that you can put out there is, I mean, we keep yep. talking about this parable and you can read it as a, oh, this is a condemnation against those, or is it meant to be? No, keep, keep up your discipleship. And, right. Well, I'm um, going to address some of that toward the end. Yeah. Yeah. We can talk about that later. Sure. Yeah. How does it conclude? So Matthew concludes with a saying that's common to several of the parables about preparedness. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. That's verse 13. And this idea is also not only common in the Gospels, but it's common in the rest of the New Testament. Given the fact that in this parable, all of the young women fall asleep, Lutz suggests that we should translate Gregorite not as keep awake, but rather as be ready. And that's mm-hmm. the way the New Century Version and then the Contemporary English Version um, uh, translate it. Uh, traditional translation of, of this verb is watch. In a lot of translations, it's watch. Others have keep awake. That's the new RSV. Um, and uh, stay alert. But, you know, given the fact that they, you know, it, seems, it sounds strange to say keep awake when even the wise young women fall asleep in this parable. So it seems to be me to be more consistent to translate it more as be ready rather than as keep awake. And again, the, the point here is not that one should be constantly on the lookout for Jesus' return, but rather one must be ready at any time for the parousia because of a life of consistent discipleship. That seems to be the point of what Matthew is trying to encourage. He's encouraging this whole idea of fulfilling all righteousness um, doing the Father's will, hearing Jesus' words and putting them into action. You know, these are themes we've, we've encountered throughout our journey through Matthew. And, and, and so basically he's looking at this as a life of consistent discipleship, and that's what he seems to be impressing upon his community. Um, so, you know, ultimately, what do we make of this parable? Well, you know, three years ago when we did this podcast, I advocated one view regarding the interpretation of this and the other difficult and violent parables in Matthew, and that is that the parable is actually ironical, and it illustrates the way the world works, which is opposite of the kingdom. And in that, I was following um, Daniel Berrigan in an article um, in the National Catholic Reporter, Bruce Malina and Richard Rohrbaugh in a social science commentary on the Synoptic Gospels, and Linda McKinnish Bridges in an article on preaching the parables of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel in Ordinary Time. They all kind of advocate this point of view. Um, I think at that point I was probably not as fully aware as I am now, having gone through all of Matthew this year, uh, of the extent to which I believe Matthew has thoroughly reworked both oral and written traditions to promote his own purposes in writing his gospel. I think that's fairly significant. Uh, And so I think at this point I would say that the themes of being ready and of the decisive role of consistent discipleship, like bearing fruit, doing the will of the Father, fulfilling all righteousness, I think those are consistent with Jesus' teachings. And also... Also, a general warning that we will all face him in judgment is also consistent with Jesus' teachings. But on the other hand, I think it is clear that Matthew has not only appropriated the theme of judgment from the oral and written gospel tradition, but he has also expanded and enhanced it by his own additions, like the parable of the dragnet or the parable of the weeds and the wheat and its interpretation, as well as by the way he picks up and reiterates judgment sayings articulated earlier in the gospel, like the saying in Matthew seven twenty one through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. I mean, this, this kind of echoes throughout the gospel. Uh, 
So I think Matthew here is, is you know, he may be working with, with an original parable of Jesus. We don't know. But clearly what has happened here is that Matthew has, has crafted a parable of his own making for his own purposes to emphasize this idea of consistent discipleship. My question, Alan, why? Well, why is this because of his community? Is right. This, is this? And, and that seems baffling to me because you don't hear such a heavy emphasis on judgment elsewhere in the New Testament. You do hear the idea of judgment, but you don't hear such a heavy emphasis. I think Matthew is the most judgment heavy book of the whole New Testament, in my estimation. And, you know, again, and especially why would he focus on this, especially with reference to his own community? Because he's, 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 these, these parables of judgment, these judgment sayings are directed to his own community, not to outsiders, not to unbelievers. Uh, as I think about the situation, the situation in the late first century church, I'm reminded of the letter to the Hebrews, in which the author is encouraging the audience to hold fast to their confidence in the face of the hardships they were enduring. And it makes me wonder whether Matthew's community may have been dealing with a similar situation. Uh, they'd been expelled from their families and their religious communities. They were struggling to understand their new identity as followers of Jesus. And I think it's easy for us to understand that they might have been getting discouraged. And so Matthew um, emphasizes this judgment theme as a way of, of trying to encourage his community toward consistent discipleship. But I would say I don't think that this approach to the problem, this approach of using the fear of exclusion was the best tactic to encourage people to consistent discipleship. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I, you know, fear and guilt, the, the fear of exclusion doesn't seem to be a, a, a very um, a healthy motivation toward, toward consistent discipleship. Mm-hmm. The expansion and the emphasis on judgment in Matthew's gospel has introduced the threat of being excluded to members of the community of believers. Yeah. We're not yeah. talking about exclusion of of people who are not believers. We're talking about people who are within the community. The threat, of, the threat of exclusion is extended to members of the community. This is something that, you know, is unheard of. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. There must, there must have been something going on in that community, that tension in that community that, that he's like, look, shape up or ship out i don't know you well know? and my tendency has been to say that that matthew is 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 um heavily influenced by apocalyptic thinking but um lutz actually makes a pretty good case for the fact that the judgment um parables and sayings in matthew's gospel actually um leave out a lot of the details that you find in typical apocalyptic materials so uh, that might not be the explanation. I don't know. I, what I would say this is even though Ulrich Lutz and others like Davies and Allison try to rescue Matthew from this idea that he's introduced of members of the community of believers being excluded based on judgment, even Lutz must admit that the history of Matthew's influence has been a history of fear and insecurity. And, and I've seen that. I mean, I, I've seen that uh, uh, in discussing... For example, the parable of the, of the sower with people. People will ask me, well, how do I know if I'm, you know, the seed fallen on the path or the seed on the rocky soil or the seed on the thorny ground or the seed on the good soil? How do I know? 
And and this is a problem I have with Matthew um, uh, basically pursuing this line of thinking is that it really has influenced, I think, the history of the church and their understanding of salvation um, uh, toward fear and and insecurity. maybe, Maybe more than it should have, right? I think so. I think so. Yeah. And I think that's always important to keep in mind. So, yeah. well, I'm, I'm going to tell folks that you'll be really curious to see what the reformers do with this because it's <laughs> kind of all over the place. And I think it will add some interesting, um, some interesting fodder to our discussion later on. So, all right. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to take a look at what the Protestant reformers, and especially Calvin, had to say about this parable. So, Christy, tell us what you found. Yeah. Well, I I mentioned they're kind of all over the place, but um, at least for um, Calvin in particular, he he says, look, it's it's about confirming the faith in their perseverance. Mm. In other words, the, the wise virgins. And Calvin in particular argues that there is great enthusiasm initially by all, um, and that's what the both all the virgins together represent, but, but they must be maintained with constant effort. The faithful must continue to replenish the lamps, and he claims that this is a metaphorical commentary on their hearts. Mm. So the light in the heart must be rekindled. Now, that's just kind of a general overview, but one of the things that I noticed in here is, first of all, Calvin does not go verse by verse with this. He doesn't try to attach significance to every single piece. And he really tells us anyway that he's mostly mostly, um, interested in the overall message. Yeah. So other reformers are going to go verse by verse claiming allegorical representation of everything. Sure. Um, But Calvin and Bootser, they're more, we want to try to get the overall message. And I did think based on a lot of the things that I read that have this nitty-gritty detail that Calvin, at least making that statement, was pretty important. He's like, we need to look at the parable as one unit. Yeah, he was one of the the first to kind of uh, break away. Well, I mean, there were were earlier commentators in the history of the church that, that, that did not follow the line of allegorical interpretation that was kind of the mainstream in the medieval church. But um, uh, Calvin, you know, the, Calvin and the reformers, you know, Calvin among the reformers is notable for for not following that point, that a- approach. What I did today was look at Calvin, but I also looked at some of the other reformers, and I'm going to kind of put in their comments in between Calvin, um, and we're going to end up then with Calvin's approach because I really kind of like what he does. But Calvin um, comments first of all, of course, on the misuse of this passage in the Middle Ages. And in in particular, he criticizes Jerome for making the passage be about virginity, which, of course, was one of the major virtues of of the medieval church. But Calvin and others, and this included both Roman Catholic scholars and and, uh, other other Protestants, agree that this is all about faithfulness. Right. And note that, as they said, all these virgins have lamps. Right. one of the Catholic um, Reformation scholars, Juan de Maldodondo, reflects the progressive but yet Roman Catholic position. So he claims the lamp is faith, but the good works are keeping them filled. Uh, yeah. Not 
Westminster. Yeah. As he says, the five wise virgins are those who have faith and works, and the five foolish ones are those who have faith without works. Totally Roman Catholic right. position, but you can see how he got there. Right. Calvin, though, as I said, focuses on the perseverance. The oil does not represent works, but rather that it represents faith. Surprise, surprise, this, right? <laughs> yeah, right? And this is also true for Johannes Bugenhagen. Calvin says this is about giving all hope um, when waiting for the return of Christ, which might not come right away. And this is merely what would be ordinarily supplied by friends of the wedding ceremony. In other words, that the preparation to have lamps was not complete in itself, but must be kept ready so that the bridegroom could be accompanied to his final destination. So Calvin take, Calvin's take on the virgins is that they are, quote, tender and delicate and would be able to accompany the groom, bride, the groom to the bride chamber. So that's his kind of allegorical take on it. But sure. then he's like, eh, let's, let's keep going. And so he notes that the description of the five, the wise ones, really developed out of the material that preceded it in Matthew. So he pointed out that the material preceding this was about the requirement of stewards to be wise. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a parable about, about servants that are waiting for their master, and, and blessed are they if they are found doing what they are, were told to do when the master returns. Yeah, exactly. That's in chapter 24. Yeah, exactly. So this is a reminder that all children of God are called to be watchful. This includes making sure that we are all taking care to meet our basic needs. And as Calvin adds, that we tend to run out of supplies, that this is our human fallenness. Mm. It's our nature to not be prepared. So it's a reminder that we can't let this happen. Mm. So what for I Calvin, the parable is an encouragement to the perseverance of the saints. Huge, right? <laughs> so um, now, as we have noted, both Calvin and in Bugenhagen see oil as faith. But for Calvin, there's much more hope in his analysis, um, sense of not growing weary. Yeah. But for Bugenhagen, the low oil meant unbelief creeping in and that it is rejected. Huh. So, I mean, it was one of those, Calvin's view of this is so hopeful. Mm. It's so, this is this is about not growing weary yeah it's about making sure encouraging people to keep their lamps full well and it's and, it's in, it's very pastoral as well absolutely and now this is calvin in the commentaries versus the other calvin that we see in the institutes yeah it's all pastoral as you said and i might also add um, that the parables are rarely referenced in the institutes any of them um they're they're heavily looked at in the commentaries but he does not use those for some kind of, of theological or doctrinal statement. They aren't supporting pieces for that. So I think that's really interesting that Calvin never uses them that way. Yeah. Um, they're used for pastoral care and for examples. Now, I wanted to have some fun with this. And I said, some commentators took great care to allegorize each element, and I just <laughs> had to do it. Giovanni Deodate, an Italian Reformed theologian, says, the bridegroom is Christ. Okay, we pretty much accept that. The wedding is the last coming. The virgins are the purity of the gospel. The wise virgins are true believers, and the foolish ones are those in the church who have neglected the spirit. <laughs> the lamps are the hearts, and the sleep is seizing from exercise of piety. Oh, my. Well, but if that's the case, then they all they all ceased from the exercise of piety, right? Because they all slept. <laughs> 
fantastic. I just, you know, it was fun though because I think, I think even modern people today we tend to want to do that. And, mm -hmm. and it, what I what I want to point out here is, even Reformation era scholars said, "Stop! Don't do that. You're yeah. going to miss the overall meaning of the parable." Yeah. So Melanchthon has a different taste, and I thought that he's interesting. He thinks it's all about the virgins. Huh. Uh, to Melanchthon, the center of the parable is that the re virgins represent the church yeah. itself, the whole of the church. That in the church there is good and evil at the same yeah. time. And we see so that in Matthew. That's 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 a theme in Matthew. And so that was what you were talking: foolish and wise, right. and evil and good and evil. That these are all right tied together so he points out that the virgins look the same right they all have lamps they all but the difference is in their foundation with god true repentance mm. and true faith so despite looking the same there will be those who are true and who trust in god and those who don't mm. all, all in the all in the same church <laughs> yeah all in the same yeah. church right that's a that's Cal a that's a strange view to me it's it's one that's that's made its way throughout history in the church but it just seems weird to me it's i think so too calvin and bootser do not yeah. do this but rather address a few of the individual verses in their mind the detailed allegorizing is not helpful at all and bootser says all the discussion about virginity the lamps the i'm, I'm going to quote this as Bootser says, quote, all the discussion about virginity, the lamps, the oil, those selling the oil, have nothing to do with the meaning of this parable. <laughs> Good for him. <laughs> the pur purpose in Bootser's mind is that we must be vigilant. And it is Bootser that makes the comparison of the wise versions to the elect as they are the ones who have prepared. Good for him. But I like, I actually like Calvin's analysis better. So we know from above that Calvin, like Bootser, wants to look at the whole parable, but for this is not so much about vigilance, but for him, perseverance. And again, we run into this hope for universal salvation that I see over and over in Calvin. Yeah, He's I guess the main difference would be that, that, that for Bootser, it's vigilance on the part of those who are true believers versus those who are false believers. Right. Whereas on the part of Calvin, it's perseverance and, and the hopefulness that there were that those who may we may even suspect are not true believers might persevere in faith and, and, and might be saved. Yeah. yeah. And the message is, is to remind people, you know, to. And honestly, you know, I, I, I want I want Matthew to be saying what Calvin is saying, but I, I it, it sounds more like Bootser to me. <laughs> you know, that was so interesting as I heard you say that. I'm like. Wow, I think he's gonna like gonna gonna think Bootser's more on on target. Well, I'm not um, saying I I, I, I I like it because I, I have troubles, as I said earlier, I have trouble with Matthew's interpretation here. I didn't mean to say like it, but I said more in tune with what you presented. Right. So there's a couple more of Calvin's detailed pieces that I thought were kind of interesting. So Calvin claims that the sleeping is not a sign of laziness. That this is a common interpretation, but actually formed the mind of Christ and the parable, which Alan talked about earlier. For Calvin sees the sleep as merely being distracted by the world. So when they find they have no oil, the five foolish ones, Calvin interprets this, interprets this as a natural result of what happens when they are not ready. And this leads directly to verse 9. And I find Calvin's response in interesting. He ties it into God's grace 
And as Calvin notes, there is grace enough to go around. Mm. But you must respond in faith to that grace. This is our call, and that there will be a time when it will be too late to accept the grace. Yeah, yeah. This is, and this is the thing that I think Matthew introduced into the New Testament message that has echoed throughout the church's history, and, and we hear it here, that there will be a time when it will be too late to accept grace. I don't hear that anywhere else in the New Testament except in Matthew, maybe in Revelation, but really it's, it's only in Matthew. Uh, trying to figure out what that means. And so he, now now Calvin had to attack the papists too, right? But it is, it is an attack on works that they're, they interpret this as something they do rather than as a response to grace. Mm-hmm. So I'm not doing, in Calvin's mind, about merely living into what has already been given. And he compares it to Isaiah 55.1, that there will be plenty to eat and drink without money. Um, quote, there is no other way of ob- obtaining it, therefore, than to receive by faith what is offered yeah. to us. Yeah. So that's a very Reformation. You can hear all sure. the Reformation overtones there. Sure. Except I, I, I do really like his hopefulness in it. Right, right. So in conclusion, we learn that there is no one standard approach to this parable in the Reformation era. Surprise, I surprise, mean, huh? <laughs> right? Well, you know what? I think if we went out and just had people read it today, we'd have the same thing. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's, it's, it's not as obvious as um, we want it to be. No. I'm impressed with Calvin and Bootser, who at least claim to look at the broad message rather than the minute, de- minute details. And this is something I still hear talked about when we are trying to understand parables. I do like the positive position of Calvin, which looks at this as a hopeful parable for the faithful rather than one of condemnation. But it continues to remind me, as I've said before, of Calvin the pastor, rather than Calvin the theologian, and certainly different from the Calvin of Calvinism. Sure. So I'm intrigued also that Bootser is the one who goes after election rather than Calvin in his interpretation, <laughs> yeah. a reminder that the ideas of election are floating around the Reformed tradition, the whole Reformed tradition. And especially Bootser surprises me because he is the one who is known for such a conciliatory approach mm. to the faith. Mm. I didn't expect it here. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Christy. Hey, everybody. Back. And uh, as Alan and I were talking, this one is really a a little bit of a troubling parable. And um, as, as we have told you that, you know, Alan had a couple different ways to look at it but the problem i think at the heart is it just seems inconsistent with who jesus is yes and um so what what do we do with it and so i'm gonna let alan um talk a little bit about how one of his favorite commentators looks at this thanks christy yeah um so ulrich lutz um really tries to rescue matthew here and he goes he, he he is very thoughtful in his approach to matthew's judgment theme but in this particular parable he he asks the question you know should we basically should we leave the parable as it ends because if we leave it that way it's it's not a joyful ending. It's a it's a troubling ending, and and so he asks: Should Jesus, the proclaimer of God's unending love, not have opened the doors to his joyful celebration, even for the foolish young women? He quotes Nikos Kazantzakis 
who thinks that the parable should have a different ending. And so Kazantzakis composes this ending for the parable. So as it's as if this followed the parable that we just, that we just looked at. So after the, after the saying about being prepared, because you do not know at what hour the Son of Man will come, um, Kazantzakis suggests, What would you have done, Nathaniel? Jesus asked, pinning his large, bewitching eyes on him. What would you have done if you had been the bridegroom? Nathaniel was silent. He still was not entirely clear in his mind what he would have done. One moment he thought to send them away. The door had definitely been closed, and that was what the law required. But the next moment he pitied them and thought to let them in. I would have opened the door, the other answered in a low voice. He had been unable to oppose the eyes of the son of Mary any longer. Congratulations, friend Nathaniel, said Jesus happily, and he stretched forth his hand as though blessing him. This moment, though you are still alive, you enter paradise. The bridegroom did exactly as you said. He called to his servants to open the door. This is a wedding, he cried. Let everyone eat, drink, and be merry. Open the door for the foolish virgins and wash and refresh their feet, for they have run much. And that's the way that Nikos Kazantzakis suggests that the parable should end. And, and you know, that, that's an ending that sounds consistent with Jesus, right? It does. It does. And, and yet, that is not what we have. That's you know? not what we have. And, and um, so, you know, Matthew has this different intention. Matthew's intention is to um, warn his community of the possibility of being excluded uh, from the kingdom of God at the judgment, which to me <laughs> makes, I don't, I don't see how he got that from Jesus. I don't either. And obviously I think what we're running into now is, well, how, how do you move ahead and, and talk about this parable? You know, because it is really, really challenging. I mean, like the last time, do you say, you know, well, it's 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 one of these uh, ironical parables, or um, eh, you could do that. Do you just um, talk about it as being something Matthew did, which we also know causes some some problems, especially yeah. Yeah. especially with our red red letter Bible you know carriers in our churches, right? Um, and 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 yet, how do you can keep preaching a a consistent message of Jesus, which is really what we get in the Bible. This is a a, a, a weird offshoot uh, instead of a, something that we really expect Jesus to say. So it, yeah. it causes some problems. Um, well, it's not I, consistent with what we hear of Jesus elsewhere. Right. And I, I right. think to me the problem is, is how do you balance grace and judgment? Or how do you right. balance grace and God's unconditional love? Uh, or, I mean, judgment and God's unconditional love. Um church jesus was all about being the judge right? of course talked about that several times and so it fits really well within the context of that time and of course our medieval people loved these kinds of allegorical interpretations and opportunities to do this that doesn't fit with today well and as you've pointed out you know even in their art um whether it's paintings or whether it's it's sculpture you know they they love to depict the, the the final judgment you know uh, in the especially in the places where the people were entering the churches and it's yeah. like it's it's again it's like they took the cue from Matthew that okay we, we've got to we've got to scare them into into believing so that they will remain true to the church 
Exactly. And I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that in some contexts that does work, but these days, I don't think that's going to be very effective for most people. No, I don't. I don't think so either. And um, you know, it, I, it, when you read it, when you read it as maybe Matthew intended, I think it's. I think it's very, very harsh. It's well, it, it, the ending is harsh. I mean, if, if it's just a matter of trying to emphasize the importance of consistent discipleship, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a theme I can get behind. You know, that is, I can definitely get behind that theme. But, I, I think but the idea of, here he introduces something new, and that's that idea that even believers in his own community might face exclusion at the judgment. And that troubles me. <laughs> you know, so interesting as we're talking because to me, that is a Bootser kind of interpretation of, well, that says that some are going to be in and some are going to stay out. And that kind of harsh Calvinism that it becomes associated with. When Calvin doesn't go there. Yeah. I find that really interesting. Calvin's mm-hmm. like, this isn't, that's not what it's about. This is about perseverance. This is about hope and the work that you do. This is about yeah. encouraging yeah. you to keep your lamps trimmed and burning. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it reminds me of that song, Give Me Oil for My Lamp, Keep Me Burning, 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 you know, till the oh, yeah. break of day. And, right. and you know, I, I can get behind that. I can get behind the encouragement to perseverance. You know, that that's okay. I don't think that's what Matthew had in mind here. <laughs> and and that, so this is, this is my problem is I really have a problem with the way Matthew has developed this parable. It, it just seems yeah. to me to be contradictory to... to the idea of who Jesus is, even within Matthew's own gospel, you know, the God who makes the sun rise on the just and the unjust and who sends the rain on the good and the evil alike, you know, that, that's, that's grace. That's, that's unconditional grace. And to, um, to, to introduce the idea that some believers, even believers in the community of faith might be excluded because they haven't lived up to to the standard of consistent discipleship well enough. That's that's troubling to me. Well, it is. It, it is. And, of course, that always brings up the, okay, so even if you t- flip that over and say it's hopeful, well, then what is it that you are having to do mm-hmm. to make sure that you're ready? I mean, that, yeah. that whole works righteousness also comes to play in this as well, yeah. Yeah. which um, I, I also find problematic, right? So it's yeah. like, oh my gosh, what do I have to do to keep my lamps and my oil ready? I mean, honestly, there's... I'm not sure I'm even going to read this gospel lesson. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm even going to yeah. read it because because it's one of those passages where just reading it raises big questions for people who are hearing. And I, and creates not, creates yes. creates I think fear and uncertainty. I think it can, I think it can, but I do think we can approach it in a way um, that it can be um, used as a hopeful way. You yeah. know, maybe maybe the way Calvin looked at it, for yeah. example. You know that this is about um, this is about perseverance. This is about um, continuing to trust. Um, and continue to trust and continue to 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 be a disciple in the faith. Well, and you know, you know to be fair to, to Ulrich Lutz, he really he really gives a thorough treatment to this whole topic, and he basically his line is basically this: his view is 
Matthew's intent here is to be encouraging to his believers to consistent discipleship. And we have to understand that all of the judgment statements and parables in Matthew's gospel point to Jesus as the judge. But who is Jesus in Matthew's gospel? He's Emmanuel. He's God who is with us. He's the one who is constantly with us, encouraging us, helping us to live this life of consistent discipleship. So that's the way Lutz tries to, to bring something positive out of this. I, I think he's reading a lot into Matthew here. I don't really think that's Matthew's intent with this parable. But, uh, but I mean, that is a way of, of, of taking a more positive approach to it. I, I think, you know, the bottom line is, even though we have Matthew's gospel and we interpret through Matthew's gospel, um, at the end of the day, it, it does make you ask, what was his real intent? And we can't mm-hmm. ask him, you know, right. what, is it just a story? You know, it's, it's kind of reminds me of talking to a bunch of kids who are getting ready to play football. And it's like, you know, you could, if you're going to be good, if you're going to succeed in this, you're going to have to put in the time and energy because right. you're not going to be successful if you don't. And it's a lesson about life. It is supposed to be, Hey kids, let's get after it. Let's work hard. Let's work our bodies hard. Let's work our minds hard. Let's work our work together hard. If you don't, you're going to miss out on the, on the, on the benefits. You're going to miss out on, sure. on a really fun experience. So, well, I and I, you know, I would say this, um, you know, again, I, I think, I think Matthew is trying to encourage his community to consistent discipleship. I, I really, I think that's his motivation, but the question in my mind is to what extent is he bought it? Has he bought in to a view of the kingdom of God that is about judgment that John the Baptist promoted, which is very different from the kingdom of God that Jesus promoted. I, I, I agree. I agree. And I, I think that's an interesting question. Um, I think one of the things that's in my mind with this, and this is probably the direction I'll take, is talking about the kingdom of God ushered in now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then thinking about if your lamps aren't, if your oil's empty, you're missing out on the participation. Sure. You're, you're, you're in the wrong, you're spending all the time looking for love in all the wrong places. Sure. And, and well, and that's one thing that Lutz points out is that, you know, Matthew had a message for his time. We may have to transpose the message for our time because, because just saying, well, if you don't, um, if you don't, if you aren't consistent in your discipleship, you could be excluded from the kingdom of God. That's not a message that goes over well at all in this day and time. I think, you know, as I said, the, the way I'm going to going to go with it is um, is this idea of if, if you're missing out. You're yeah. missing out yeah. on, on the love and the peace and the joy of the kingdom because you're looking, you're, you're not ready. You're not, you're not participating in, um, you're not participating in those things that, that bring the community together, that, that, that lead to joyful celebration of God. Sure. You're, 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 Searching. Yeah, producing fruit is a joyful thing. Uh, fulfilling all righteousness is a joyful thing in Matthew's in Matthew's community in Matthew's mind. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So anyway, this is a fun one or not fun, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's kind of fun. So um, you know, it's it's and and I, I of course in, as as Alan already referenced, burning, burning, burning. I keep thinking um, 
keep your lamps trimmed and burning was my favorite. So, yeah. you know, it's a good Sunday to have some good music, too. Okay. Thanks, Christy. <laughs> That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.